Hello, happy May 31st, Monday, Life in Red podcast. We're lifeinredpodcast.com, Life in Red pod on Twitter, and Life in Red podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And before I get into this episode and my guest, I would like to reaffirm this podcast and myself uh, as a firm ally of our Indigenous communities. Every Child Matters and the news uh, over the past weekend. And I'm sure news to come um, has been absolutely shattering of the 215 uh, bodies found. Um, as I've mentioned in this podcast, I do have a close personal family connection with that. I've learned a lot over the past couple of years. And of course, going back to my conversation with Carrington, um, uh, it's an important thing for me. So um, my thoughts with the community uh, and I uh, stand firm in my belief of being a good ally, listening, learning, and reflecting on what that means. Um, my guest today, um, another unsinkable community champion joining the podcast. And uh, of course, that means we're talking about mental health and going into their story. Um, we Two things we've covered and, and covered in recent podcasts even is is motherhood and, and endo. And this conversation reinforced what we learned before, but took a different angle in the, the mental health struggles of trying to become a mother uh, and, you know, having that maybe be in jeopardy because of endometriosis and the complications that come with that. And, and we talk about her life and um, how that has struggled and how she's turned into an advocate uh, and it was a really great conversation. And we've known each other for years on, on through our, our work and uh, online on Twitter. And uh, it was great to get to know her a little bit better. And always great to chat with a fellow Unsunkable Community Champion. Uh, she is a uh, manager in the, the government. She is an author and uh, owns a publishing uh, company called Little V Books. She's a public speaker, uh, mental health advocate. You can follow her at Amanda Bernardo. So please give it up for my guest, Amanda Bernardo. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to Life in Red. From Twitter... Uh, and another unsinkable community champion uh, joining the show, Amanda. So nice to uh, kind of meet you officially, I guess. I know we've met in the past, but nice to, to meet you here. Yes, yeah, nice to finally meet uh, virtually and kind of join force, forces for uh, today's conversation. Really excited to be here. Yeah, and we did a, a Twitter chat a, a couple of weeks ago, which I think went really well. Um, you have an interesting story that like I've talked a lot about uh, motherhood and, you know, pregnancy and, and all the sorts of things that go into that. And your story uh, especially is, is along those lines, but very different from what I've been able to chat about before. So I look forward to getting into your story and hearing it. But before that, how are you doing? How have you been through this pandemic? And, you know, as we get closer to the end, hopefully. Yeah, it's been hard. I'm not going to lie. And I try to be vocal about that. It's been hard, you know, on my social media platforms, because I think from the outside looking in, I am in a in a really good position compared to some Canadians. You know, I work from home. My salary hasn't been interrupted. I have my help. I have a home. I have food on the table. I'm, I'm very fortunate in all those regards. Um, but with all that said, I think we're all experiencing that groundhog day. And, it, you know, after a certain period of time, that starts to weigh in on you. Um, obviously, for me and my story, you know, about motherhood, which we'll get into, um, it's challenging, too, because every time there's a new restriction, um, all my plans begin to get delayed. And so supposed to get married, trying to replan that three times, all the events tied to that. And then, you know, that marriage is kind of the kickoff to starting my family planning. So that's been really hard to um, navigate. And also just being home alone. You know, I, my fiance works, he's essential. So you don't have that same camaraderie with your colleagues, everything's virtual. And I find most of those discussions, even though you connect with your colleagues, 
they're really about work. You know, we kind of lost that water cooler chat, those coffees at Starbucks. Um, so that's been difficult too, but hanging in there and doing what I can to build new routines just to support me. But it's, it's been a challenge for sure. I, I resonate with that a lot. And while there is no comparable to what healthcare workers and essential workers are doing for sure, uh, you know, it's important, it's always important to acknowledge that we all struggle in different ways. And I'm the same, like my job is secure and I'm still getting paid and, you know, I'm not in danger and I'm very grateful for that. But that being alone thing, uh, especially, you know, now we're a year into this, it's, it's become a little bit more like I can deal with it, but like, I don't know about you, but the start of the pandemic and that whole transition of having to shift routine and no longer seeing people every day, that was so hard for me to to figure out and navigate. Like, was it kind of the same for you or did, were you able to adapt kind of quicker? No, it was definitely hard for me. I think in the very beginning of the pandemic, I was actually sent to go support Public Health Agency of Canada on COVID. And so I was working like 18 hour days from March until July. And so I don't really think I had the opportunity to process what was really happening. It was just I was so focused on my work. Um, We were all trying to make a huge difference for Canadians and you kind of like lose sight of being able to reflect on how that impacts you in your own life. So I would say my reaction was slightly delayed. It wasn't until about August when I ended that uh, short-term contract with public health and went back to my old job and kind of was rebuilding new routines that I realized, holy smokes, like what is happening in the world? Um, And that's when kind of had to make decisions about weddings. My original wedding date was coming up. Everything was just then starting to pile up. Um, But the feeling of isolation, it's interesting because, you know, I I would call myself an introvert at heart, actually call myself an ambivert. So I am outgoing, but I also like alone time. Um, But it was too much alone time. And for someone with anxiety, I also really struggled with kind of the slow pace of things because now it was creating space for me to just pause and think, which I don't do well in. Um, So a lot of people, you know, noticed that I was taking on like night school and different random things because I was trying to fill my time to feel busy because I no longer had that social um, activities or events or whatever the case may be filling up my calendar. So um, the isolation was definitely real, probably hit the hardest in October, uh, definitely started seeing a therapist for the first time, just trying to figure out how do I process what I'm feeling and, and what's happening. And I think even to this day, there's so much uncertainty and unknown surrounding COVID-19. And for someone who thrives on structure and planning, not being able to envision what my life looks like 30 days from now is an instant, you know, trigger to my anxiety. So that was really hard to kind of learn to reformulate the way I was thinking because it wasn't going to serve me well during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. And not to mention, like you, you mentioned it, those, those milestones and, and like those life milestones that you were so close to, and then having to navigate, like you said, three times of like, okay, like, here we go again, let's try to get to, oh, no, no, you can't like it, just that, that up and down of emotion and stress of trying to get it like, th- like that, that all in itself on top of the anxiety and on top of the pandemic and everything else, like it just, it's so turbulent. I can, I can only imagine. I want to go. Okay. So into your story and I'm going to let you tell it the way you can tell it. But as far as when it started is, is mental health something you've always struggled with? Um, I know for myself, it started at a very early age, even though I didn't, I didn't know or recognize that it was starting. Is, is that your experience as well? Yeah, so I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember. When I was really little, I remember panic attacks before the first day of school. I was traumatized of thinking, who's going to be in my class? How is this going to play out? Really kind of the type of person that clings to words and reflects on it weeks and months after it's, you know, passed or been said. Um, It really got bad for me when I was in high school. I started experiencing extreme um, panic attacks to the point that I would just faint. I would just, you know, (laughs) collapse from, from just having such a horrible panic attack. And at that point, um, I started to understand a little bit that 
my mind was programmed in a certain way that I couldn't help it. And so I, I think I started, you know, at that high school age, learning to be a little bit more logical when it came to my thoughts and really trying to talk myself back and trying to understand, you know, you're thinking this way because, um, and I've been fortunate for that awareness piece. I think that has helped me in many instances, walk myself back from a panic attack or get myself, you know, through a certain phase. Um, where I would say it took a turn would have been when I was diagnosed with endometriosis. And so I was 26 and I remember when I was first diagnosed. Um, so I was rushed to the hospital because I had a cyst inside of me that ruptured. Um, and that rupture basically led to the diagnosis of endometriosis. And I remember going to, um, the appointment following my hospital visit. And my mom said like, Oh, do you want me to come with you? like, no, I'm 26. I'm good mom. Don't worry. Like I wasn't really thinking of everything that was happening. And I didn't even know what endometriosis was at the time. And my first specialist appointment, I remember being sat down and explained what the conditions were or was and, and what the symptoms were and what were the potential impacts, you know, on my life. And that's when it kind of started to sink in a little bit more deeper. And so one of the, the bigger side effects is infertility. And for someone who was, you know, always career driven, really just focused on growing my, growing myself, you know, professionally, personally, I never assumed that when it was time to be a mother, I would hit a roadblock. I just assumed once I was ready, that would happen and I would be able to start my family. And so for being, you know, 26 years old and being told, you know, there's a chance you might not be a mom, like, or you may have difficulties becoming a mom, it really started to weigh in on me. Um, and I remember just trying to like Google, like someone else's story, like just desperate to see, was there other people that had endometriosis who got pregnant? What was their journey? Like, how long did it take them? And that's where kind of my slump into depression, um, began. And I had a really, really hard time, uh, just like seeing a mother and a child, like walking down the street or seeing a pregnant woman. I think I just got so absorbed into my own thoughts of what if, um, and always alluding to the more negative side of that what if, which is, you know, kind of the downward spiral that depression takes you where life just feels very dark and very negative. Um, so although I've lived with anxiety from a very young age, I think the most startling um, encounter with mental illness would have been that phase of, of depression. And, you know, I, I managed to get through that particular phase are there days where I feel worse than others? A hundred percent. I think there's sometimes that reoccurring battle that you kind of face, you know, especially for me, because my story has not led to that happy ending yet that I'm looking for. So that what if continues to kind of eat away at me, but that first year um, of depression was something I had never experienced before. And it, it was quite frightening to, uh, to be honest, I think, especially because, you know, being in high school, and like I said, I learned to be a little bit more logical and trying to understand my feelings. I could instantly recognize in myself a shift. I could tell that I wasn't myself anymore. I wasn't thinking like I should be. I was looking at my life like, what's the point? You know, everything's bad. And I could look at my life and be like, it's not bad, Amanda. Like you have all these good things going for you. And yet my mind was telling me, you know, it is bad. This isn't good. And you'll, maybe you'll never be a mom. And it was just a lot of negative talk to myself that truth be told, I've had to learn to train myself to not talk to myself um, that way and to be more optimistic. And with scenarios like a pandemic, um, for someone who's experienced depression or anxiety, you know, that hope is what allows you to continue and to, you know, move on or to find strength and not being able to see the end of the light, you know, even here is really difficult is how do you plan or move forward when you really don't know what next month will look like or six months from now will look like. So I can see some of those old habits kind of trickling back. But it, um, I definitely think that, you know, through therapy and other mechanisms, I've learned to at least try to understand myself better to try to navigate that um, a little bit better for myself. 
Mm-hmm. One of the the biggest things you mentioned there is exactly my part of my story and a big part that I always try to emphasize with people is that I have so many wonderful things in my life. I have a wonderful family. I've never experienced any sort of really tra- traumatic events, uh, no family deaths, you know, nothing that would ever tell me that my life is not worth living yet. I still experience depression and suicidal ideation. And, and, you know, trying to explain that to someone who doesn't really get it, it, it's really difficult because it's like you have what society tells you you need to be happy and yet your brain tricks you. What I want to kind of like get at before we get into the the endometriosis and and the motherhood part of mental health, you, you mentioned as you were growing up, you were, you know, you were very, rational you were able to recognize that there was something wrong and try to fix it or at least try to find ways to manage it what i'm curious about because this is something that happens with me is i have the rational part of my brain that's like ryan you know this is anxiety oh you're just depressed it's not real and then i have the other part of my brain combating that being like oh no this is real like you know and they kind of go at it and usually the the, uh, irrational part of my brain is the one that wins. And, and I'm wondering if you kind of experienced that as well, that, that, that battle of being rational and then the, the mental health struggles kind of overtaking that. Yeah, I think there's one, you know, you said it perfectly in that you can recognize it in yourself. Does it mean that you stop thinking that way? Um, you know, for me, in many instances, the, the case was no. Um, especially with my anxiety, I found that I, I easily go down rabbit holes of just like overthinking something and then, you know, making it a lot worse. And even if I tell myself, you know, if that's not the case or this isn't the case, I'm still going through a panic attack. I still feel like I can't breathe and my heart is racing. Um, with the depression, it was interesting in that when I say that I was rational, I was able to get up and seek help. And I think that was my saving grace in that, um, you know, I remember laying on my bed and I just, you know, walked downstairs. My fiance was in the living room and I just said like, something's not right with me. Like, I just feel really, really dark. And I remember just laying there for a while and like many nights laying there for a while before I could actually admit to someone else that, you know, I'm not feeling okay. And this is kind of taking a bit of a dark turn in my brain. And I'm grateful that I could recognize that in myself to actually say it out loud and find the courage to say it out loud. Um, because I don't know where my story would have you know, led me if I, if I hadn't. Um, but that to me was one of the harder parts of my story is actually admitting it um, out loud. Um, and it's interesting because I am a mental health advocate. I've been a mental health advocate for a very long time. And if you even caught in my story, you know, I only recently went to a therapist this year. So not even during my depression had I sought, you know, resources because there's this stigma of people perceiving me as lesser than if I were to share my story or share what I was going through. Years later, I can do that. But, you know, if you were to ask me to be on your podcast, then I would, you wouldn't even known to ask me that question about myself because I would go to work and I would be smiling and my hair would be done and I would still be dressed normally. And no one would ever have known that I was going through that. Um, so I even remember, you know, going to my parents to say, I'm not feeling well, like I'm really feeling really depressed right now. And they were kind of taken aback. They knew that I was struggling with my condition, but I don't think they realized it was that bad emotionally for me. Um, So that's kind of where I say the rational piece of my mind at least did me a favor in that, yes, there were certainly many, many nights where I was, you know, misery loves company and I was its best friend and it was some really bad times. But Thankfully, in that battle, my rational side of my brain did win because then I was able to go to my doctor and I was able to kind of explain what I was going through. Um, But all that to say, I never saw a therapist back then. You know, I became my own therapist through writing and just, you know, poetry and reflection. Um, But even then, the stigma kind of prevented me from kind of probably getting the help I should have got. Um, It probably would have been a lot easier to get through had I had I been a little bit more rational Mm -hmm. and asked for the help that I needed. Yeah. I had a huge transition um, 
I guess it would have been 2018. And I was really struggling with some stuff with social media and especially Twitter and some of the cultural and political discussions that were going on there. And I was really struggling. And and at that time, I also started public speaking. And it was such a weird, someone had to point it out to me and kind of snap me out of it. But that even though I was on a stage talking to people about managing mental health, like there was still something in me that I wasn't able to manage my own mental health in certain cases. And you're right. I think there's, there is stigma even as speakers and advocates and, and barriers to even us, like, can I be a good advocate and speak about it when I myself have not maybe like you kind of mentioned that it resonated with me, reach that happy ending, reach that, you know, that the end and it's important to recognize that it's it's a journey and it, it might not ever end it's just like an evolution and ongoing process of just trying to figure it out and then once you figure it out something else comes up and you're like oh, okay back to the drawing board right yeah i think that's a really good point that you know mental health is a spectrum and you know even like i said there are days now where i feel depressed and you know especially in the winter time i get kind of seasonal depression and i can really feel it um or even now with my anxiety kind of just randomly start thinking things and you know i was explaining to someone like what anxiety was i was like as a kid it was like i saw a car crash on tv and suddenly my whole family was dying in a car crash like that's what, what anxiety was or like a trigger was but you know, it is a spectrum. And I think we have to be a little bit more gentle with ourselves and understanding that because to, um, to believe that you need to be perfect all the time is a really hard um, standard to live up to. And um, I've been a little bit more forgiving with myself in that regard. Um, But it is a journey and you kind of always have to think about kind of where your next steps take you. One thing I do want to just quickly build on in the sense that, you know, we're talking about as public speakers and advocates. I remember when I first started to share my story, um, I'd always get the comment, you know, I'm surprised like someone like you would go through something like that. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times my inbox in Twitter would be filled with comments like that. And at first I was super irritated by it. Like, what do you mean someone like me? And I think you know, mental health or mental illness, rather, it can be masked very, very easily. And part of my reasoning for speaking up was you can't judge a book by its cover. And I think that's why we always say, you know, like, be kind to everyone that you meet, because, you know, they might not always demonstrate or or show visible signs of what they're going through. And so that's kind of why I feel empowered to do that now, because how, you know, how many times did you hide it, Ryan? Like, we've all hidden parts of ourselves. And even recently when I saw my therapist in October, I remember I told my fiance, I was like, okay, I'm going to book an appointment with a therapist. It was right around the time I was supposed to get married. And it was just, you know, I was feeling myself kind of getting back into that depression. I was like, you know what, I'm going to practice what I preach. I'm actually going to seek out some help. And I booked an appointment and I remember told my fiance, don't tell anybody, don't tell anyone I booked a, like an appointment with a therapist. Like, don't say anything. And then I had that first appointment and I was like, wow, just, I wish I had this appointment, you know, five years ago when I was going through that depression. And I remember I went on Twitter and I was like, I saw a therapist today. I was like, I cannot, I am part of the problem in a sense that, you know, I am also being challenged by the stigma to not fully go through my journey with people. And I know there are so many others that are like that. And so I give kudos to people like you, our fellow unsinkable champions who are kind of shifting that narrative. And that's where those mental health campaigns are so important. You know, the money is fantastic. It's going to help services and programs and initiatives. Fantastic. But even if one story is shared and someone just feels a little less alone or a little bit more able to express what they're going through going through, to me, that's a huge win. Because like I said, at the start of my journey, that's exactly what I wanted. I just wanted to see someone else's story and I couldn't. Um, So it's it's a learning curve to kind of change that even in yourself and feel more open to sharing things. But um, it's certainly been part of my own healing for sure. Mm -hmm. Especially how open you choose to be. uh, Like, there's one thing to advocate and share your story, but how deep and personal do you want to go, especially on the internet? Cause that can be, it's a whole other animal. Um, I find myself that, and I always battle, like how deep do I want to share? 
how far do I want to take this? Uh, because you know, there's people out there that might misinterpret, might take things and, and I don't know, just warp them in a sick way. Just the internet's not always a trustworthy place. So I understand that. And another point I just want to touch on quickly is that face of mental illness, because we, we seem to have this preconceived notion of what mental illness looks like. So when you have someone, and I I get this way with celebrities a lot too, that like, you know, when they're successful or they're attractive or they're fit, you know, that when they talk about their depression or struggles, people often negate that. You know, I think about someone like Demi Lovato or The Rock or someone who's personally admitted their struggles and people are like, you know, you're a millionaire. I'm like, oh, like so invalidating and it, it really bugs me. I want to talk about though um, the part of because I've I covered endometriosis a couple episodes ago with Summer. I'm not sure if you heard of Golden Girl uh, here in Ottawa, um, which is like a jewelry company also raising awareness for women's health and, and endo. And we definitely talked about all the physical struggles, and we we kind of dabbled in the mental health. I want to talk about the mental health impact of that because you know learning about what endo does to women and how many women struggle with this and there's no you know cure or really great treatment what was like can you take us kind of through the emotional impact of one being diagnosed and then two finding out you know finding out all about it starting to learn about it and and what that may take on your life yeah for sure um so I'll just premise if I cry, I apologize. Like I'm usually really good at telling the story. I, I've only told it, you know, this way a few times. Like I, I do enjoy Twitter because, you know, I can just write it and writing is kind of my way of expressing myself. But um, it was a lot because it kind of came at me left field. Like in, in essence, when I look back at kind of my, my history, like I could have been diagnosed with endometriosis a lot sooner is what, you know, my, my doctors had said I had, you know, bad menstrual cycles, you know, this is really getting into it, Ryan, but since I was like very young and, um, I was on painkillers, like that was the way to actually manage it. It was just pain management. And I remember even back then, you know, having to sometimes take like two or three days off and people didn't really get that. And it's just like, oh, you're over exaggerating or, you know, it can't be that bad or you're trying to get out of a test or you just don't want to go to work. And it was really frustrating because nobody choose to be, chooses to be like in bed crying in absolutely dire pain. Um, so that was like the very, very early days. And, and that was a struggle. When I finally got diagnosed, it was both like a, pl- a blessing and a curse because I'm a firm believer that knowledge is power. And so, you know, I felt that I was empowered to figure out my next, my next steps because I had this diagnosis suddenly, like all the years of pain and everything that I had been through had a reason for it. And I wasn't just crazy. And, you know, people say like, oh, it's just bad periods for women. And like, I think so many times early signs of endo or even PCOS get dismissed as a result of that notion. Um, So that was, you know, in the very beginning, I was kind of like, yeah, I kind of know what's going on now. I felt super empowered. When I ended up starting kind of like the specialist appointments, I think that's when things hit me the hardest in that, you know, I probably should have took someone to those appointments, but here I was like, I'm 26. I can totally do this on my own. Um, I was just very overwhelmed. And I remember following my hospital visit, I was referred to the women's health uh, center. And I remember I just booked the morning off and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to work like right after. And I left the like the meeting and that meeting kind of basically told me everything. And the doctor was very kind and said, you know, don't let this get into your head. Like technology has come a long way. There's other ways that you can get pregnant. Like, don't worry. It's just a risk, blah, blah, blah. But being someone that's already, you know, very anxious, I just, you know, immediately just started harboring that what if to the most negative conclusions possible. And I remember I got in the car, called my mom and told my mom, yep, it's endometriosis. And I guess my mom had a more understanding of what that was. And she was kind of like, are you okay? Like, do you want to come home? Like, are you going to go to work? I'm like, yeah, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm just going to go to work. And I got to work and 
to me, the most, one of the most powerful questions, and I say this quite often is how are you? I think people undervalue that common, how are you? Um, but when someone's like at that moment where that question is really critical, it can open like the floodworks, which, which basically was my situation. Got to the office. One of my colleagues had said like, Oh, where were you? Like, is everything okay? And just started bawling, you know, my eyes out because everything was just starting to hit me again, kind of that delayed processing of what I was told, what my future could look like. And oddly enough, the woman that asked me had endometriosis. I had never known that. Um, And she told me her journey and kind of what she was going through. And, you know, she didn't get diagnosed for four years. So she kind of four years of struggling to get pregnant, didn't really know, finally got diagnosed with endo within three years, was able to conceive. So a seven year journey. So here I was 26 thinking, oh my gosh, like, is it going to take me seven years to get pregnant? Like, what will my journey be like? And then that started weighing in on my, you know, in my head. From an emotional perspective, I think there were like two really hard parts of that journey. One, being diagnosed and being told kind of everything. And two, explaining that to my fiance. Mm -hmm. So for me at the time we were, we were just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, dating for a long time. We've been together now 10 years. So this would have been, you know, four years roughly into our relationship. Um, but I felt I had, I owed it to him to explain what I was told word for word. Um, and that was scary because part of me was like, how do you tell someone that there could be a chance that they can't be a father or, you know, naturally. Um, so then that started, I get, I started getting very, very obsessed about how do I have this conversation? What will this mean for us? Like, will this end our relationship again, just spiraling into that anxious kind of regard for what was happening. Um, and he was fantastic. Like I couldn't have asked for a better partner to kind of help me through this. Um, obviously, you know, whatever happens, happens was kind of his answer here for you. Love you. It's not going to change anything, which was a huge relief, but that was one of the harder emotional um, moments and people that I've met recently. I think that is a hard part of their story is that although you're dealing with it personally as, you know, an experience for yourself um, to have to pull someone else into your story that can't control it was um it was I can see it's hard for couples and it was really really difficult um for me I, I didn't want to take something away from someone else um so those would have been probably the the hardest you know two emotional you know times and probably the third would be now in that you know I got engaged super excited you know I'm Catholic so I wanted to do it right in, in our sense of get married, have my child. And, and I say right for me because, you know, everyone has their, their own journeys. But right for me was I wanted to get married and then I wanted to start my family. And then when, when the pandemic hit, it just was super overwhelming because here I was. Time has felt like an enemy to me ever since I was diagnosed. I'm getting older. So now I'm not only dealing with my age, I'm dealing with the condition. Um And throughout my condition, I ended up in the hospital quite a few other times. I was then diagnosed with PCOS. And most recently, I had fibroids in my uterus. And so every time I had these hospital visits, it was infertility, infertility, infertility. So then that started getting really hard is every time I started to convince myself and to find the courage to, you know, there's a quote that, you know, to accept the things I couldn't change. I was just being hit and tested over and over again. And by the time the pandemic happened, it was like, how much more of this can I take? Like how many more bumps in the road is, are going to be thrown my way before I can be a mother. And then the other hard part was seeing everybody get pregnant during the pandemic. And obviously I'm so happy for my friends and I have such great friends, but that in itself was very difficult because, you know, I'm not looking at it and saying, I wish that was me and, and jealous or envious, but at the end of the day, I wish that was me. You know, it's, it's very hard. And so those old emotions of looking at women who were pregnant, those are strangers. And so I didn't necessarily see it all the time, but now it was like closer to home and I was seeing it a lot more. And I was just so desperate for it that I was just, you know, when will it be my turn? 
and it's so it's been a bit of um, an emotional roller coaster um you know writing has been my saving grace it's just how I communicate um I'd like to think I'm a good public speaker too, but you know, when you public speak, you almost, you're speaking for others benefit. When I write, I find I'm, I'm writing for myself and able to kind of work through what I'm feeling, but it, um, it's like you said, it, it's a never ending journey. Like even now I'm three months out to a wedding date, which we've set in stone and we're moving forward. And I finally started next steps with specialists in terms of thinking about my endo and how I plan forward. And that unknown just eats away at your emotions because you don't really know what to expect. And that's just a really scary feeling. You apologized about you maybe crying and then you had me <laughs> up about your partner. Um, but that's just, it's so beautiful. I just love when people are like that and just, you know, are supportive and, and, and everything. One of, so on this podcast, I've had the chance to talk to mothers about mental health and, and pregnancy and, and, you know, kind of postpartum, I, I've, I've been able to have those conversations around this subject and the subject with you, the struggle to, you know, get pregnant and, and become a mother and that struggle of maybe not knowing. And, and like you said about anxiety, when you don't know the end, right? Like it's so hard to control. I just, share with what you're comfortable sharing, but, you know, is, is this something you heard talk about a lot in terms of mental health and that broader discussion? Cause like you said, when you went to look for a story, you couldn't find it. And I don't hear a lot of people, at least in my circles or communities or social media talking about the mental toll of perhaps being in, you know, infertile. And like you said, that struggle maybe with a relationship you know, is this something in a broader context from what you've seen that women are comfortable exploring and talking about in the public sphere? I think we've come a long way um, from when I was diagnosed. Um, when I was diagnosed and I Google endo, um, I would get like WebMD descriptions and diagrams. Like I wasn't looking for a medical diagnosis or explanation of symptoms. I already got that what I really wanted was the story of the woman who had experienced it. And part of me did want to know like, what was her outcome? Because that would give me hope. And for me, when I was originally diagnosed, I actually had to get off Instagram for an entire year because it was a trigger for just my depression at the time. And just seeing all these baby posts. And there are a number of fantastic mom blogs on Instagram, sharing their kids, sharing kind of, you know, their activities and this and that, but it's hard to find, um, the less glamorous side, even of motherhood, once you've had a child on Instagram, let alone someone who's trying to chase motherhood is, you know, how I have described my journey. And so I really, really struggled to resonate with anything that I could find online. There wasn't really much of that. And I think that's what kind of motivated me to start talking about my story. Fast forward to today, there are a number of really great endo like Facebook groups where truth be told, like that Facebook group has done more for me in the last year than some of my traditional um, medication or or, you know, service providers that I've had, because now I'm hearing one-on-one from other women who have experienced it and who are openly sharing their, their story. I think with women, um, a lot of times, just from a historical perspective, your value is tied to fertility, like your job or perceived job, especially back in the day is, you get married, you take care of your husband, your home, you have a family. And so for me, a lot of my self-worth was suddenly tied to something I didn't have control over. And similar to mental illness, I think I just started to think that I was less of a woman because of what I was diagnosed with, because I would maybe not be able to have a kid or my journey would be a little bit different. Um, 
And that I think is really challenging for women, especially when it comes, you know, I mentioned time. There's this idea that you should be married by a certain, you know, you you go to school, you graduate, you get your career, you get married, you start a family. Like there's this roadmap almost entrenched into society of like, this is what success looks like for you. And and for me, yes, my journey, I, I really do want to be a mom, but there are some women who don't. And that's completely okay too. But society then questions, well, why aren't you married? Why don't you have a kid? And to each their own, right? It shouldn't be um, an indicator of how successful or happy your life is. Um, but speaking to that effect, I think when I got diagnosed, one of the most important, as a writer, Um, one of the most important things I noticed was language. And so I started to pick up on how often in a job interview or in a job setting, I was asked if I was married or had kids, like just automatically like, oh, are you married? Do you have kids? And like, it's so part of our just regular conversation that people I think don't realize sometimes like what those questions can sometimes infer or a cause to someone. And so for me personally, I stopped asking people like if they got married, when are you going to have kids? Like I stopped asking that because you don't know people's journeys. And even with things like miscarriage or postpartum depression, you know, those things previously were also not talked a lot about. And so I'm starting to see a lot more conversation around the journey to motherhood, which is really refreshing because no one's journey is exactly the same. And I remember, you know, even my first time sharing my story publicly, I had a, an 800 person event. So like, way to go. The first time I did, it, I was like, let's go big or go home. Um, and I remember I went the day before they were doing like a dry run of the presentation and I had my slides ready and they're like, okay, man, do you want to do a quick one? And I was like, no, I'm good. They're like, oh, you don't want to just like practice. I'm like, no, I'm just going to say it once. It's going to be the once like on the stage. And like, I don't have it in me to say this twice. So it'll be once. And then I got home and I was like, okay, maybe I really should practice just to make sure like I'm 20 minutes, like the time that I was allotted. And I could not get through the presentation, like just absolute tears. And I'm like the type of person that has like the worst ugly cry. And like, I get like high, like red rash on my face, can't breathe. And I'm like, this is going to go horribly, horribly wrong. And I remember talking to one of my colleagues and she said on one of your um, like little postcards that I had in my hand, she's like, right, you got this. And if you feel like you're going to cry, just like pause and like look at the paper and remind yourself that you got this. And so I got through my presentation and I was just so proud of myself because I finally got it out of my system. And that to me was a really, you know, I'm sure your very first time telling your story. You remember that time. And after my presentation, a woman had come up to me and she said, you know, I had endometriosis this was my journey. I want to show you something. And she showed me a picture and it was her with a little boy. And she said, you know, this is my son. And she's like, I adopted. She's like, don't worry. Like motherhood comes in different forms for, for everyone. And it was just really, it was really humbling to be able to share that experience with someone else. And I think that's what I really enjoy about sharing my story now is that it connects you in a way that I think is one of the benefits of social media. There's a lot on social media, but these things, these conversations, these communities, that's why I'm in it because you can, you can really see the difference it's basically having in someone's life. You're right. And especially Twitter. And I know we both use Twitter probably the most out of any social media we have. And you're right. It's a dumpster fire. Sometimes there's so much crap and negativity and all these things going on, but Twitter especially has has changed my life. It really has. We connected on Twitter. Uh, I've connected to so many incredible advocates and storytellers and organizations doing amazing work in the mental health space. And there's just, there is such a need that like people crave authenticity and exploring emotions because there's so, I think everybody can relate to something on the internet and you know we just we don't get those stories told a lot in a broader sense of of media and in movies and you know all that type of stuff it's very 
one-sided or just doesn't explore it deep enough for people to connect. And that's what social media has given, given me at least, is an ability to connect in a way without the gatekeeping, without people, you know, putting up the barriers, right? It's just one-on-one, my story and your story, and let's talk about it. Yeah, I think from an authenticity perspective, um, you know, I couldn't sleep yesterday. I had the worst insomnia and I was just like looking at TikTok and Instagram and like going through it. And there's there's so much good that's on there and being displayed. And it, it really makes me happy to see that the world is such a good place in that regard. But at the same time, there's a lot of hardship that's happening. And I don't think all social media platforms enable those conversations in the same way. Um, but I do really cling to or, you know, find my tribe when I see people who, you know, without without hesitation kind of open up on those types of platforms, like you said, without knowing how it'll be received and kind of just sharing that other side of life. And we've almost come become like consumed by all this marketing and mm-hmm. buy this and buy that. And, and I don't know if that's why social media was created in the first place, like probably was monetary, whatever, but it almost desensitizes you then to the harder realities of life. And, you know, when I would get that comment of, I would never expect someone like you to have experienced something like that. I kind of felt that I was playing into that machine and that I was, wasn't being my full self, full self because I was denying parts of my story. And that piece, you know, that we've touched on in terms of stigma you know, we see that in campaigns like end the stigma and the stigma. I don't know if people realize how real that stigma actually is. And so when you find someone building up the courage to share their story, like to me, automatic, you know, heart, like I commend that person. But I'll give you an example. I remember I work for the public service, the federal government as my day job. And I remember right around when I was sharing my story, a very senior executive in the government of Canada had made a comment to me that that basically said, you should be careful about how much you share online if you want to see yourself become an executive in the government of Canada. And I was kind of like, what? Like, what am I, what am I hearing right now? Like, all right, what about all these mental health campaigns we've been talking about and the Not Myself Today campaign and the mental health commission work that's happening and this and that and this and that. And And suddenly now I'm being told, like, be careful how much you share. And I was like, that is not the type of leader I want to be. And so if I can't be my whole self online or wherever I present myself, then I don't want to be in that organization or be part of something that doesn't accept me for exactly who I am. And I get asked that quite often, especially with my Twitter, because I am a public servant. So I tweet about that and I do a publishing company and I tweet about that and I do photography and I tweet about that. And Hey, if I make a really good meal, like, you know, I'm going to tweet about that. Um, and people always say like, do you, don't, don't you think you should have two separate, you know, profiles, like one for work and then for your, your personal life. And I said, but that's not me. Like, this is like, this isn't a brand. This is who I am. Like this, my personal brand, if you want to call it is myself. And so if you can't take my story about endo and mental illness and yada, 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 and accept me, then don't follow me and don't promote me and, and don't, you know, whatever, engage with me, whatever the case may be. But I think we, we try sometimes to break apart. Like you kind of mentioned with celebrities, like, well, you can't be a celebrity and have mental illness, or you can't be rich and claim that you're sad or whatever the case may be. And we're seeing that even a lot with the pandemic. And I know I'm trailing a little bit right now, but you know, one of the things that really frustrated me with the pandemic is that people were comparing situations and saying, well, you know, there was an article talking about the fertility clinic in Ottawa and how it had to pause some of their treatments and how devastating that was to a lot of women and how they thought that that should be deemed essential. And there was such an ugly, like very ugly debate on Facebook that 
how dare they, you know, ask for that to be essential when cancer treatments are, are being paused as well. And that's worse than that. And it shouldn't be a game of something's worse than another. It's everyone's going through their struggles, their journeys. Everyone's trying to advocate for what, you know, what they need in their life, what they expect of their government, et cetera, et cetera. But we can't, you know, I don't like that game. I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm worse off than you, or this is that. I think we just need to be more kind and respectful that everyone's going through something and that's going to look very different. And if you can resonate with someone's story, great, but you know, save your stones. I don't think we need to be throwing stones because it looks different or, you know, if your struggle is different. Um, and that's been really hard to uh, see on social media right now. I don't know if you've seen some of that stuff, but it's, it, it was really heartbreaking. And, and for someone who could relate to time and how obsessed I've been with time, um, it was really hard to see how hurtful people were to the realities that other people were facing. I see that all the time. And that's part of the thing that when I was talking about struggling a couple of years ago is how we compare each other's struggles. And like, instead of working together, we, we become that tribe, right? Where it's like, you know, we're this and, and you're that and, and we're worse off. And then people are arguing about who has it worse off. It's like everybody both, like, you know what I mean? And I find I, I'm the same way. I, I struggle with why are you battling when you could be working together? It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and I, I totally resonate with that. And I also resonate with what you're talking about is like the brand, right? We always talk about, on special, especially on social media, where it's like, you need to niche. It's like, no, like I am who I am. Uh, like, and that's something I worked really hard in therapy is to not make my mental illness my entire personality and you know like cling to that in every sense of the word and you see that a lot on social media especially is people cling to an identity and I think become a little bit too ingrained in that and and that becomes their whole world when you know I I'm not my mental illness I I talk about my the struggles in my dating life I talk about sports I talk about politics or certain things I believe in and I talk about my mental illness and struggles, right? Like I don't, I don't want to be one thing and and have you know be known for that one thing, and that's all I can talk about. Uh, you know, I have many interests and passions and lanes, and I don't think restricting people on what they can and, and cannot talk about, I, like I don't think that does really any good. Yeah, but, we uh, see that like society almost accept, expects us to be or. You're either this or that, but like, it's okay to be an and society. I am this and I am this and I am this. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that just makes your relationship so much more stronger when someone can see the full, the full you and it's not a surprise. And, you know, you have other interests and, you know, I've seen that too, in terms of, um, Almost sometimes, like, I feel that it's hard to share my story because of the way that I look in that, you know, if I, if I showed up to your podcast with a messy bun or like, you know, a raggedy t-shirt, like, would then, would you see mental illness or, or is it, you can't see it because I, you know, I did my hair today and I decided to wear, you know, a nice shirt because I haven't in a while. It's been, you know, sweatpants and, and joggers and, and, and that's hard too, is that um, you're almost given an identity that you didn't even choose for yourself when it comes to social media. And so you have to advocate a little bit harder for this is actually who I am as opposed to who you perceive me to be. Yeah. People, oh, that's another thing too. It could go on a whole tangent. <laughs> people's perceptions, like they think they know you or everything about you. And you especially get this with you know, people with larger platforms, right? That people seem to think they know all about them. And then when they do something that's a little off brand and it doesn't even have to be good or bad, you know, people kind of flip out and, and are, you know, it becomes like a giant story and starts trending. And you're like, you know, we just, I saw this term actually on TikTok. I, I can't remember the exact term, but it was just basically like someone who's online too much. And then that becomes their whole perception of reality. And it's like, mm, no, like that's not how the world works. There's, a, you, you're right. We do want to look at things like 
you know, like one side or the other, left or right, black and white, good or evil. And it, it, there's a lot more gray and nuance to what makes us human. And I want to tweet about that a lot. Like I, I always have thoughts about that, but I'm like, it's at this point in my life, it's just not worth it to have any of these debates online because people are only going to perceive things one way and and it's going to relate to and centralize on their experience. So if I tweet something completely ambiguous, you're going to interpret that, not you specifically, but people are going to interpret that in the way that they look at the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, I could be like, you know, people think uh, people do this, you know, or, or whatever. And people would be like, oh yeah, the left does that or the right does that. It's just like, you know, it, it, we got to get step outside of that. Uh, we're coming up in an hour and I, like I said, we could go on a whole rabbit hole in that conversation, <laughs> but I want to talk about the writing because, you know, you, you mentioned you have the publishing company and, uh, and, and you have books out and, and all these different things. And one of the things for me, and I love talking about on this podcast is expression through art, because for me, that's so important. And I don't, I'm not necessarily a writer. Like my podcast is almost my art where, me expressing myself on here and talking with people is, is my expression. I also find a lot of expression through music. Music is, is such a huge part of my life. And, and I just listen to these songs and just, you know, it just, just completes me. And I want to talk about that feeling you get with writing because you mentioned, you know, when you're speaking that you're almost talking for people. Whereas when you're writing, you're expressing yourself. How do you go about that and, and just take us, you know, what goes through your mind? What's the feelings like? And then talk a little bit about the, the publishing company and some of the stuff you've written. Yeah. Um, so as open as I am, I, I, I do consider myself a bit of an open book. It takes me a while to get to that point. And so in the moment, um, writing is just an easier outlet for me. And I think that's why I'm so geared towards Twitter because I can write my thoughts and then I can reread it and then I can post it. And I'm just a little bit more articulate when it comes to choice of words, as opposed to, you know, taking a photo of myself and then, you know, trying to put that out there. I do love taking photos of others, but of myself, it's, it's a bit harder with the writing. Um, I've just always been drawn to it since I was a kid. I was journaling since I was very, very young and I still have those journals and it's absolutely hilarious to go back and kind of, you know, see what you thought of yourself as a kid and how that evolves. When it came to um, getting diagnosed with endometriosis, um, I just really didn't have an outlet to talk to someone that could relate at the time. And so I was almost like talking to myself through my writing. I was like, here's what I was going through. And truth be told, I have been writing my novel about my journey. I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but you know, everything I've been going through, I've been just writing it into this, this book about kind of my life. And when I was depressed, um, like I said, I didn't actually go to a therapist at the time. I remember going to my doctor and I had been on, or I'm still on this medication, but the medication that I was on had side effects for depression as well. And so I had just asked, you know, can I please get off these meds? Like it's really not working. And, um, that was kind of the end of the conversation. There was no additional supports offered to me or like other next steps. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up just turning to my laptop. So like the modern day equivalent of a pen and pad. And I remember just kind of trying to write out what that depression looked like, because if I could see it on paper, I can maybe again, have that rational side of me win a little bit more. And so I just started writing. And and for me, it's really writing about how I feel, writing about, you know, where I hope to go. And, you know, we were talking earlier about manifestation. And I do believe in, in, you know, energy attracts energy and trying to like put out into the world what you would like to see for yourself. And so part of me was just writing to try to maybe visualize where my story would go, like to be the author of my narrative. Um, My publishing company, Little Voice Books, we publish kids books, excuse me, kids books. And oddly enough, the poems and the writing that I was doing during my depression, I actually converted it into a kids book called The Lighthouse, which is all about mental health. Um, And a lot of times people ask me, like, where do you draw inspiration from your writing? And it really is through this cathartic experience of what I've been feeling 
And what are the conversations I hope to be had when someone reads my writing? So when I read it back to myself, I'm kind of having a bit of a conversation. When I convert it into something like a kid's book or something to digest, like an article or blog or something for other people to read, what conversations will spur when, you know, after they've read it, that's kind of always been kind of my end goal with the writing. Um, It's, I know for some people, you know, sharing the writing, it's very personal. And early on, I never really did share my writing, but now I've just come to this point, I think, and I'm really grateful that I've got to this point in my life where it's like, this is me. You know, I'm really, you know, there are days I don't feel confident, but more or less, I feel very confident in this is who I am, love it or leave it. And so when I put my writing out in the world early on, I was always like, oh, how are people going to react? And now it's like, you know, it's out there. If someone can resonate with it, great. If someone hates it, so be it. Um, But the writing is part of that cathartic journey for me, but the publishing of it is also part of that journey for me. There's something about vocalizing something into the world that takes it off your shoulders. And I am the type of person where I hold a lot in a lot of the time. I'm also, you know, consider myself a bit of an empath. So when someone else tells me what they're going through, I hold that in. Um, So writing has been this way of kind of offboarding or offloading some of that emotion that's just weighing in on me to say, you know, that chapter's over. It's out in the world now. Like, let's move on and try to create space in you for maybe more happier emotions or just less stress or less anxiety. So it's been, I love writing. If, you know, even my therapist has said, if it works for you, keep writing, you know, do maybe audio journals or writing journals, whatever works for you. But um, it's been a huge saving grace in my story. And, and uh, like you, in terms of pulling that story out from your guests on your podcast, for me, my personal writing is a way to pull it out of myself. Um, And it's, it's, um, it's something that I hope in the long run when I'm able to hopefully eventually publish my, my big story on kind of my journey with endo that, you know, that young girl who is Googling and can only find WebMD, you know, diagnostics on endo, maybe she'll stumble upon my, my book and, and that would make, you know, a world of a difference to me. Mm. That, you know, it just, I find so many things that you're, you're saying just resonates with me. Like I don't specifically write, but I use Twitter as kind of like my, my journal still writing it's still writing yeah, right? and uh <laughs> like getting my thoughts out there like that's kind of how I use it and I think it's so interesting and it's something I wish in like when I'm speaking specifically to like men and masculinity that more men especially explore this idea of journaling and writing and just you know so so many people have problems talking about it with somebody and you know that's something we all need to get through together and and that stigma but even just writing it down for yourself you don't have to share with anybody I think is just such a therapeutic meditative opportunity to reflect on things and you know that's something I really wish men would explore more um, you know, some men do it and that's great, but especially men who are struggling with mental illness and mental health struggles or just something in their life that they're, they're struggling with, whether it's career or relationships that they explore this idea of putting pen to paper or e- even talking into a mic and just reflecting on those things. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes um, there's a bit of a permanent nature when you're actually taking what you're thinking or feeling inside and putting it Mm. outside of you, that's very scary. And I think that's why a lot of times people don't maybe open up because once you put it down on paper or once, you know, it comes out of your mouth, it's real. It's very, very real. And that initial escape can be very, very overwhelming and very scary to people. And so, you know, even writing it in, you know, sometimes I've written things and I've like ripped it out and like, because <laughs> it's like, even though, you know, it's in my book and, you know, someone's not going to find it or whatever. It's like, no, I put it out into the world. So I need to delete it. Like who knows if someone sees this or whatever. And I think that's the part where stigma comes in is that even in that essence, like there's that fear that you'll be uncovered or, mm-hmm. you know, that part of you that you're, you're thinking about, oh my gosh, now it's out there in the world and it's real. And like, then you can start to 
feel overwhelmed that that is your identity or this is it. I put it out there and now this is what's going to happen or this is what I'm going to be, you know, portrayed as or whatever the case may be. So it, it definitely takes courage, whether you're writing to yourself, speaking to yourself, speaking to a stage of one, five, 10, going on Twitter, all those moments where you are able to take what's in you and put it out into the world takes courage. And I commend anyone in whatever format, whether it be art, music, writing. Um, but I do think the world is a lot better when, when those things get put out in there. 100%. It, it, it's a long weekend, so uh, I don't want to keep you much longer. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing your experience and your story, being open and vulnerable and, and sharing that energy and space with me because I know like we talked about, it's, it's not easy and it, it can be scary. So I really appreciate it. Where can people, you know, find your book, find your company, uh, some of your website stuff, social media? Yeah. So my number one is probably Twitter, as Ryan said, and it's just at Amanda Bernardo. You can learn more about my kids book company at littlevoicebooks.com and more about my public speaking and personal work. You can find at amandabernardo.ca. I really quickly just want to say thank you, Ryan. And, you know, the world is better that we have conversations and platforms like this. And I'm really grateful that I had the chance to share my story and your art really is bringing people to the table and helping to, you know, get that conversation going. So really appreciate it. And I look forward to what we can work up together in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when this pandemic is over, we're in the same city and would love to think of ways we can all work together and, and really start pushing mental health forward. So uh, appreciate the kind words and thank you very, very much. I agree. Can't wait. Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit